Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome to our special Supreme Court pop-up edition of Hidden History Happy Hour with Alex and Brian. And Alex, we made several promises to our listeners when we launched this endeavor. And thank you so much to all the people that have flocked to this podcast. It's been great. Oh, and the stories you're suggesting, it's really, it's very heartwarming. Keep keep them coming. Keep them coming. And we look forward to the relationship with all of you. But what we promise our listeners is, first of all, they'll have fun. Secondly, they'll uh, learn something important about not only history, but relative to their current lives. And third, of course, we'll have some cocktails. And I think part of the reason we wanted to do this special pop-up edition is is the, the middle point to try to make this what might seem an obscure issue to some voters in, in the United States uh, an important one and show them why they should care about a Supreme Court nomination and therefore about presidents that they elect. Now, obviously, there is a very passionate, vocal minority on all sides of issues in the United States for whom the Supreme Court is a voting issue, sometimes the voting issue. But I've been in politics and government for longer than I care to think about. And for a lot of people, they kind of say, eh, what's the relevance to me? It's a bunch of people sitting somewhere in Washington. It really doesn't touch my lives my life. So I think maybe we can suggest that that's a little bit of a narrow way to look at it. Couldn't so agree more. Also, I'm so excited to welcome our first special guest to our podcast, Terry Franklin, who is going to tell us a, an amazing story of his ancestors and slavery in the new world next time, which you will not want to miss. But we are so fond of Terry, and he has such relevant experience that we asked him to come on this podcast to help us sort through the issues around President Biden's historic nomination of the first black woman to the United States Supreme Court. Welcome, Terry. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us, Terry. Absolutely. So to set the scene, Alex and Terry, imagine this. The United States is divided more than ever in its history with the likelihood of political violence increasing every day. A newly elected president's inauguration is credibly threatened with armed attack and insurrection. States are promoting multiple sets of electors, and we'll get into this later, but electors are the individuals who actually vote for our president. We vote in popular votes and caucuses in our states, and then the electors are the ones who actually go to Washington to cast the vote. So states are promoting multiple sets of electors, And the doors, if you can imagine such a thing, of the United States Capitol, where the votes are counted, are being patrolled by armed guards. And on the day of the vote counting, violence breaks out in the streets. Any idea what year this would be, Alex? 1861? 1861. You got it. And that was not a prearranged answer. But some people might think it was 2020. That's the reason I framed it. I got it. Very close. It was 1861, of course, and the new U.S. president, if he could get to his swearing in alive, was, of course, Abraham Lincoln. Shockingly soon after he arrived, our country was plunged into our bloody civil war. And before the new president could even get his bearings, 
He's faced with Washington, D.C., his capital, being completely surrounded by enemy Confederate states, with Virginia already fighting in the Confederacy, several serious riots breaking out in Baltimore, Maryland, which is the other surrounding state to the District of Columbia, to Washington, and no ability for Union troops to get to the capital. Telegraph lines were cut and a credible fear of Confederate ships sailing up the Potomac River any day to blockade the city. It was during these darkest of days for the still young United States that Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus, which will get us to the Supreme Court momentarily. But let's back up for a second. Alex, as with many things in our law, the United States inherited the sacred writ of habeas corpus from right. your country, did we not? You, you did, and um, you speak about it, and you talk about Magna Carta rather more than people do in this country, in my country, um, I, I, I think. Um, and I will um, just be... I met the late Justice Scalia a few times and he uh, he said, and you're going to have to forgive a, a bad impression, but Scalia said to me, <laughs> people say I, I don't quote any foreign law. It's completely untrue. <laughs> I just quote lots of old law and it's all English law. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of old law, Alex, as a young CIA attorney, I had this amazing experience with our brothers slash frenemies in the Federal Bureau of Investigation, in which I wrote a letter to the FBI on CIA letterhead and following the government's manual, I put Department of Justice, Federal Bureau of Investigation, blah, blah, blah. And I sent it off. And shortly I got a phone call from a bureau chief, uh, a division chief at the FBI saying, do not ever include the Department of Justice on a letter to us ever again. And I said, but, sir, the National well, Security Act, report to, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. said, the National Security Act clearly lays out the hierarchy. And he said to me, and I'm quoting, yeah, but that law is really old, isn't it? <laughs> 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 to which I, uh, I, 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 I should have said. Yeah. But I was so is habeas young. corpus. Yeah. yeah, right. The Fourth <laughs> yeah. Amendment, habeas corpus. Exactly. Yeah. So let me read the provision of the United States Constitution that talks about habeas corpus. But first, Alex, why don't you tell us what habeas corpus is? Bring forth the body, produce the man. You, uh, you don't have a right to uh, hold somebody without charge. And it's been um, a cause celebre recently in my country where um, a past government sought under our provisions for terrorism legislation to, this is history, but very recent history. The yes, uh, past government sought to have the right to hold people without charge for up to 90 days. Yeah. I mean, it's Insane. extraordinary. We allowed them 28 days, right? which is a, a stain on my parliament. But yes. they initially sought 90. Well, you know, I have know, to it's interesting, And I, I think, doesn't it actually mean to bring forth the body of evidence? It's not just the physical body. I think, isn't that the original Latin? Bring, this is a, bring a forth, side note. Bring forth the charge. Yes. Yeah. Show, show us, show us what, how, on what basis you're confining this person. Yes. The body, the exactly. body, of, the, the body of evidence that has to be brought forth. Yeah, and interestingly, we're going to meet shortly Mr. Um, Merriman, who is the subject of the Supreme Court case that I'm getting to. And as a very senior United States national security lawyer after 9-11, looking at the periods of holding that we could do on people if they were potential material witnesses, as opposed to being charged with a crime, we still look to this case, the Merriman case, from hundreds of years ago as the controlling law. 
And I will also say that I've, as you know, Alex, you and I have been together at these. I've been at many conferences in Europe where as the American representative, I get all but having pig's blood thrown on me for our horrible practices after 9-11, to which I point out comparing it to your detention law, even right. after 9-11, we're talking about 48 to 72 hours of holding someone, not 28 or 72 right. days or whatever it is. Right. So yes, the idea of habeas corpus is if the executive branch of a government, or God forbid the military, which we're going to get to, arrests a person and holds them in custody against their will, that individual can go to a court and ask the court to order the person that's holding them to come and prove that there's a legitimate reason for them to be held. And the provision in the U.S. Constitution that's at issue here is, is this. The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended, comma, unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. So contrary to what a lot of people believe, gentlemen, it's not absolute at all. There's a very important unless clause there. So my thing is, uh, I, I was for I was ready for this because yes. I've got my copy of William Rehnquist's All the Laws <laughs> But One in front of me because I knew we were going to have this conversation about um, about your Supreme Court and whatever one thinks of Rehnquist as a jurist as a writer of the history of parts of the most important elements of your uh, legal system, all the laws but one, subtitle, Civil Liberties in Wartime, yes, sir. tell you all you need to know about the argument that you're and very current in, in your country and in mine in recent times, um, a very good book. But a lot of it is about Lincoln and, what, and his suspension of habeas corpus to yes. prevent people voting. Yes, this uh, is an excellent book. We recommend it, whatever your political stripes are, whatever you think of Rehnquist, as a chief justice, it's very accessible. It's not long. It's much yep. like Alex's book. It's it's told conversationally. And in fact, he, he credits his daughter in the preface for specifically having the mission of making him talk less like a lawyer. So, yeah. But that's very, very flattering to my book to compare it to Rehnquist. Um, well, I appreciate it, but that's yes, sir. going mm -hmm. some. Yes, sir. But it's but it's a great book. You can get it on Amazon It's or anywhere. It's really, uh, it's quite exceptional. And it, it'll surprise a lot of people. Uh, for example, I was in the Bush White House after 9-11, and there were a lot of people, uh, uh, mostly on the left, but in the media also, who were just hand-wringing about every anti-terrorism measure we would put in. And some of them probably went too far, and some of them that were approved by our Congress on a bipartisan basis probably went too far. But when I started looking into the historical precedent in the older cases, and I found out what Lincoln had done, what Roosevelt had done, what the icons of the American left had done. And I sort of concluded maybe the press was frothing at the mouth a little bit too much, but that's for another day. Well, you know, it's all about interpretation. <laughs> yes, sir. You, yeah, yeah. Well, but sure. But also I think that's true, Terry, but also about motive, right? And there's a big question about whether the ends justify the means and that's one of the ultimate questions in this area of civil liberty the question of civil liberties in mean in wartime because in your country not in mine so much which is not quite as au fait with the issues but most people in, in your country who've studied history will, will remember that lincoln suspended habeas corpus most in the course of your civil war most people don't remember why he did it he did it to prevent the um electors in maryland the voters in maryland having a vote so that they could secede mm -hmm. potentially secede Imagine yeah. a modern president trying to prevent 
voters from voting in a free election and using the military to enforce to do it. Yeah. And that, and then being regarded as a hero. I mean, there, there isn't a, there is a draft executive order by president Trump that tried to do exactly that, but that's for another day. So in any event, is that true? It, oh yeah. 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 So but, but yeah, let's talk about that. The January 6th commission has unearthed a draft executive order granted unsigned. I've seen a lot of draft executive orders from presidents of both parties that were wacky, but right? This one ordered the military to seize ballot boxes all over the country. Yeah, I think when you, when, when you have the power, you can do what you want. So stare decisis or precedent, <laughs> we throw it out the window when it doesn't work for us, but we find ways to use it when, when we need it. And in the same way, he was ready. He had, his, and, he, he had and, his executive order ready to go. And one of the ongoing themes of, of Rehnquist's book throughout all the stories is that presidents in wartime almost always push the limit of their constitutional authority and oftentimes exceed it. Right. And our courts that are supposed to be a check on the executive branch and even our Congresses pretty much look the other way when they think there's an existential threat to the country, much like with the Japanese internment camps in World War II. And then the Supreme Court comes out later and slaps them on the wrist, but right. they still did what they did. Well, there's lots and, of precedent for you know, whatever comes in terms of wartime, as long as it's uh, justifiable in wartime, you get away with it, right? But, yeah. Go ahead, Terry. But when we're not in wartime, you know, you know what's going to happen to these things? Because the executive power just continues to grow and grow and grow, right? Well, and now, of course, with terrorism and weapons of mass destruction and even, honestly, insurrection, as a national security lawyer, I can tell you there's a lot of question about one, what is wartime? And two, in wartime, what's the battlefield? We can be right. sure that ISIS and Al Qaeda are never going to show up on the battleship Missouri like the, the Japanese did in World War II and sign a surrender. Right. So when does that end? And that, that's for another show. But there's a way to look at these issues, and it's an important way, from an institutional, constitutional, interaction of government, political science, wonky background. But it's a very different thing to put yourself in the shoes of a Lincoln in these darkest days of his capital being surrounded, or even of a George W. Bush, right. when I was attending meetings every day when we had hundreds of terrorist plots that we were tracking. Right. So I want to pick up on one thing you said there about the potential for the president's capital to be surrounded by his enemies. Was, uh, this is a, a conversation in your country that taught me something about, uh, about the English language. Um, the, your capital, the, the district, originally, district looked like a full, originally looked like a full square rather than three sides of the square and then the, the, um, the Potomac forming uh, the fourth side. And that area to the south of the uh, river in Alexandria um, was retroceded back to Virginia, which is not a common word. Yeah, yes, you you've seceded <laughs> some land to somebody and you can retrocede it. And then Lincoln tried to take the land back again. So as to have a port and not have uh, the south side of, uh, not have the south side of his um, capital facing the enemy. He, he of course didn't succeed, and it's remained part of uh, Virginia to this day. But uh, retrocession is uh, is a term you don't get generally outside of uh, that discussion. So I commend it to you. 
Yeah, if you're listening, Mexico, any chance we could retrocede Texas to you guys? Well, they may <laughs> they may have some questions the other way around. So I'm not sure I'd open that can of worms in your shoes. Which way does it end up? <laughs> I have to say that this reminds me of the quite spirit-raising text that I received from my pal Alex about four in the morning on election day 2016 after President Trump had been declared the winner in which he said, not to worry, buddy. I've spoken with the queen. You're still welcome back anytime. Yep, your bedroom's <laughs> unchanged, guys. We've had strong <laughs> female leadership since 1952. Come home whenever you like. Actually, so, my daughter my daughter's there. She lives in the UK. Oh, well, she's chosen very well. Okay, Terry, tell us a little about your perspective on the Supreme Court. We've got this decision coming up. Yeah, um, it's an interesting time. I think one of the things that's interesting about this is that it, shows you the breadth of uh, excellence among black women judges who are yeah. likely candidates who mm -hmm. are up for uh, consideration you know, from across the country. Uh, the people, women who really worked their way through the court systems and navigated all kinds of institutions to find their way there. And um, they're all incredible. Uh, I'm, I'm rooting for Wilhelmina Mimi Wright from Minnesota just because we were law school classmates. But I think they have an embarrassment of riches. Let me ask you this. People always say about someone who comes to great prominence, I always knew, and they name, <laughs> like they name something about them when they were right. young. What was it you saw when you were with her at law school that made you think that's someone who's going to go all the way? Actually, I thought everybody in my law school was somebody who had the potential to go all the way. I mean, I, that's the thing about all of us as human beings. I believe we all have inherent potential for genius oh, and extraordinary stuff. But, you know, Mimi was really bright. Uh, she was hardworking. I remember she, I think she did crew. Uh, but then I've seen her a couple of times. I saw her at the... Um, That's what you call rowing, right? It's, I'm, I'm, not yeah, exactly. asking, I'm not being facetious. That's, <laughs> yeah, just, on this yeah. occasion, I'm not being facetious. You, yes, okay, rowing. rowing. Yeah. It's, a, it's a particular kind of rowing. I think there's a couple of different uh, versions. Uh, but yeah, uh, she and she's worked her way up through the, uh, the different court systems and then was, I think, was on the Minnesota Supreme Court for a bit. Um, but, um, you know, there are what six or seven women that they've identified as potential right. candidates uh katanji brown jackson is is one of them who's thought of highly as well i think she clerked for for briar so there'd be an interesting right. sort of parallel of that in terms direct of direct legacy uh, yeah. yeah her sort of involvement and knowledge and being aware at the court um Ter terry both as a legal matter and a political matter being a, a black american how do you feel about President Biden promising before he was elected to name a black woman and then following through on that promise. And how would you feel if candidate Cruz in 2023 says, I will name nothing but old white guys to the court? Well, I, you know, I think you can see the difference in that. I can. Up until uh, the first extreme amount of history of our, of our country, there were nothing but white uh, male judges who were on our Supreme Court. So yeah. if we're at a time when we're trying to make sure that the court should look like America, uh, and especially when we are certainly aware of the fact that there are plenty of qualified black women candidates and we've never had a black woman sit on the court, it's, um, it's, it's a, an easy, um, it's an easy false equivalency right. to suggest that it's okay to say, well, we want to put on a white guy because we already have uh, 
all hundred and whatever number of Supreme Court justices who've ever sat on the court uh, were all those white guys. Uh, and, and now to have had two African-Americans at all uh, and no African-American women and only now one Latina uh, on, the, on the court, uh, it's time for the court to look more diverse than it, than it, it, than it ever has. It, it, it's funny you use that phrase. And of course, my question was rhetorical, but I did have a political science professor who once wrote on um, on one of my essays, hashtag easy false equivalency. So I'm, I'm well aware of uh, of, of that. <laughs> so, but but sorry, I, do you mind as an outs uh, as an outside uh, perspective? But but as I've, I've seen some of the goings on in your Supreme Court, I was I mentioned I, I knew Justice Scalia and I was at an event that he was at when he was asked this question about is the court diverse enough? And I think a lot of people expected him to say, my great friend Clarence Thomas, which is true. They were very they were good friends. They expected him to point to and Ruth easy, Bader Ginsburg also. The, the easy yeah, that's true. His friendship spanned the spectrum, but I think that people expected him to say, Well, this Af great African American um uh judge is a great friend of mine. He he looked at this person and said, Well, if you care about my views about diversity diversity of thought is the thing i care about most mm -hmm. and if you want to think about that and you're thinking about people's beliefs shouldn't you be concerned about the fact that seven of us are catholics mm -hmm. and the audience was, yeah it was you know very interesting perspective well this yeah, is a, kind of but, yeah you know that whole notion that uh somehow white men who've sat on the court forever could ever imagine the experience of a black woman uh you know it's it's that kind of False equivalency, right. false equivalency that, and, uh, and, that's there because we know and, that these identities foster and create and establish what establishes character and what connects us to, to who we are as human beings. So, and, uh, you know, that's a crazy and, question. And that's exactly where I was going with the question, Terry. And I wish the White House would hire you to be their advocate on the Hill because the <laughs> way I would be describing this is one, false equivalency, like you said, that there's there's been 150 some Supreme Court justices and never a, an African-American woman, and it's time for that. But also more importantly, maybe, than the signal sending that that has is, isn't it about time that we had some people on the Supreme Court who were not Ivy League educated lawyers who spent their entire life as judges? You're, they're deciding issues that are affecting Americans at every level of every race of every gender every day. And you could forgive someone who's gone to whatever that secondary university in England is Cambridge and lived all their lives in the Academy for not understanding <laughs> the life of, of someone, of someone who's grown up in, you know, South Carolina as a black person. And it's as much to me, the racial justice piece of it, as it is, the I've lived a different life than you and the Supreme Court needs to, to have that perspective. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think but I think that's the thing. They all are together. You know, it's it's like mm. the uh, intersectionality. Like we we are represent all of these identities that we bring to whatever it is that we do. And so the racial justice aspects, a part of that is just having lived a life in a world yeah. Yeah. where uh, you know you've experienced injustice that you can see things that that can't be seen that that were not written into the laws of absolutely white men who created the laws who 
really weren't even thinking about black women. They, they were property. Uh, you know, when you think, when you, when you consider our constitution or our right. founding documents, you wouldn't give consideration to, to the thoughts uh, so, or to the interests of those people. Ted, can I ask you a process question then? Because I think, so you, you, you've got the nomination. We know it's coming. We know the one justice is going to step down at the end of this term. We know we've got that zone. We know that the Supreme Court has been, has been politicized as a, as a process. If it, if it wasn't politicized in the nomination process, it now very much is. Uh, we know that the Senate is split 50-50, an environment in which nobody's ever been nominated to the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court, there's never been a 50-50 uh, success before. Um, do you think that the president's commitment in advance to nominate a, a black woman to the Supreme Court will make the success of a nomination easier because people can point to the, the campaign and the success of that and the person getting elected to president. Will this make it an easier process? I don't know, that's an interesting question. You know, in some ways it should because he made clear what his intention and desire was and, and he got he elected. elected and he was, people were aware of that. Right. Uh, but it also should just be, I would think a question of obvious, um, it's the time, uh, you know, it, it, this right. is the moment. He said it, we have qualified candidates who can fill this role, who uh, unfortunately, Brian, most of them probably do have the same <laughs> Ivy League background. But not, but, uh, not, but not all, but not all, not but, all. But not all, um, but you know, the, the, it, the fact that they are black women and they are all black women means that they should all get an equal shot at, <laughs> at right. getting this. So, you know, if, if there are going to be questions about the confirmation, it should have nothing to do with the race because we've yeah. all known who right. was going to be nominated. Well, yeah. I mean, I, and, I, I doubt and who should no be on the court. Would, no one would dare say it openly. I, I, I uh, think uh, except yes. for Senator Roger Wicker, who recently on television said that if the pick is a black woman, it's obviously a product of affirmative action. Well, that's a shame that someone would say it, that. It um, is. It but is. I also want to. I, I want to take a little issue with your your point about being an Ivy Leaguer, because actually, whilst of course the Ivy League is a second-rate educational <laughs> system compared to what you get in the United Kingdom, uh, notwithstanding <laughs> that, it is the apex of your educational system. And I would look at that, Brian, and say to myself, you know, people have railed at the gates of those institutions and said, "Let in people of all backgrounds." Uh, and a black woman gets goes there, excels, comes through, and then you want to hold it against her that well, she went to an Ivy League school that seemed a strange uh, turn of affairs to me well that's fair and i mean if we had unlimited time we'd unpack some of these issues because they're related but they're not all the same you could have a woman of color who graduated from yale law school who also was a community activist and had been a defense lawyer and uh, my only point is there's a there's an unfortunate predominance on our Supreme Court for the last 30 years of people who graduate law school on the law review, clerk for a federal judge, clerk for another federal judge, clerk for the Supreme Court, go to a big law firm, or they go into academia, and next thing you know, they're on the Supreme Court, as opposed to actually having lived a life that they would understand what their rulings are going to do to the people that are in those lives. And the unfortunate part is that you can't be, you probably in, in our country, you could not be someone who'd gone to an HBCU, a historically black college and university, gotten the same education and be expected to be considered in the same rank because we have held these people to a standard at this level that you all have to have the 
the Ivy League education. And so any of the black women who would be up for this right. are going to have the very tops of those and won't be able to cause us to consider that there are other ways to have an excellent education. I know you say that the, the Ivy League is the apex of our education system. I don't. But there are plenty of wonderful, <laughs> amazing universities and institutions in this country. But right it's become this line that, you know, that people have to cross. So Terry, what do you think, given we've discussed the, um, the path of history being long, but bending towards just the arc of history being long, but bending towards justice. What do you think about politicians making pledges like this about appointments? And do you think we're going to see it more? Um, I, I would think that that is a welcome idea. I know that some people will push back on the idea of, of identifying a black female candidate as a, uh, for the, for the Supreme Court of the United States. But that's precisely the reason why we want to have someone chosen from with, with those identities, because that is the person who has been thought of as the most oppressed. We have the most examples of, of having been left behind and disregarded in this country. And to the extent that we are lifting up the people who have been held down the most uh, then we uplift everyone at the same time. I and mean, I think that's part of the problem of our whole Western culture is not realizing the interconnectedness of that, that we all are connected yeah. together. So lifting everyone, that means starting with the people who have been the most oppressed right. will uplift us all. Thinking it's a zero sum game. I totally agree with that. And I, I want to, I want to circle back to history because that is our, in our name, but, but, but I also want to, have a quick discussion of a, another lens through which to view the Supreme Court process in the United States. And that is, I was a Senate staffer in 1985 for Senator Tom Harkin, who's a very left-wing Democrat. And in those days, I know I sound like grumpy old man from Saturday Night Live, but in those days, essentially, if the president picked someone who was not a criminal you know, not unqualified, had served as a judge before and wasn't a complete radical on the left or right, the opposing party in the Senate, which confirms all of our Supreme Court nominees, would confirm them. Those days are gone. They've, they left during the late 80s. Both sides are responsible. It would be nice if we could get back to the idea that elections have consequences. And if Biden promised a Black woman on the court and Biden got elected, the Republicans in the Senate would say, well, you know, fair is fair. You, you get who you want as long as they're qualified. I don't think we're ever going to get back to that. But Terry, I guess you and then Alex, yeah. is there any chance of even putting that genie a little bit back in the bottle or is it done? Not with the numbers as they are, the way they're divided. I mean, after, after McConnell pulled the fast one on, uh, on, uh, Merrick Garland's nomination. Hold on, hang on. After Terry Reed, after Harry <laughs> Reed pulled a fast one by uh, announcing that he would not allow the filibuster for judicial nominees, which at the time, myself and many other people said, "Be careful what you wish for." But right. please, I, 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 and I don't know when you stop the escalation to the point where it's uh, <laughs> where it does become nuclear, and it was described yes. as such at the, at the time. But uh, to deprive a, uh, a candidate or, or the president of truly his nominee for the Supreme Court, I think, sent a, sent a shockwave that, uh, that, yeah. that puts us beyond uh, 
any number of, of reasonable limits. And I think the idea of trying to get back to something like comedy at this point, I don't see it's possible. So you think it's generations away. Alex, um, uh, how does this work in the UK? I mean, is, is what what is the equivalent of the Supreme Court? Do they have the same power? How does it work? We have a court which is now called the Supreme Court. It used to be the Judicial Committee of the House of Lords. Um, but it it sits as a separate body and uh, it is members are selected by a Judicial Appointments Committee. In fact, there's a brilliant book on this process written by a thrusting young lawyer then called Alex <laughs> Dean in 2003, advocating some changes, which, of course, never happened. Well, some of them did. But anyway, um, how so many books have, of yours do we have to sell on this podcast? Just, just, uh, <laughs> we can even cut that bit out. But anyway, um, the, the point I was going to make about this is that looking so, yes, we, we, we have a process in which our judges aren't elected. Our judges aren't uh, at any level. Our judges aren't appointed by politicians. We have a uh, an appointments committee, which supposedly is um, seeks to select the best candidates. Um, that you can have lots of questions about whether that's how it works, but there's certainly no, no vote in our House of Commons or House of Lords to approve so, nominations. So your Supreme Court is not made up of members of the House of Lords anymore. They uh, they also sit as law lords, but they are not. In fact, in fact, they never were quite in the way that you were implying. You know, just gentry or hereditaries who just went and did some legal stuff or happened to sit as a as a judge. They were always qualified uh, lawyers. It well, was let me that put it. They let me would put go it this and way. sit in our upper house as well. Let me put it this way: Can you be on the UK Supreme Court and not be a member of the House of Lords? Yes. Okay. All right. Very good. But um, you guys have something called the advisory opinion, which we don't have in the U.S., right, where your Supreme Court can opine on things that haven't actually come no to litigation yet. Uh, it's, I mean, it's not a common um, activity at all, but you know, the, the court waits for cases to, to reach it, just like, just like yours does. It's still a common law court. And, uh, and, and is, it, is, it, is your court politicized in the same way that Terry and I were just discussing ours being? It's been drawn down that road over certain yeah. events, Brexit being one, but nothing like the same. But what I was going to say to you about the conversation you and Terry were just having, because it's fascinating to me, is that you don't have to go back very long to find a less... I know you've had a couple of... Kemi uh, Barrett and Kavanaugh, you've had a couple of, of, of big um, controversial-ish uh, appointments in a row. Uh, you know, It's your country and your court, but it matters to everybody because of the significance of the decisions that it takes for the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, Gorsuch's nomination was nothing like that kind of explosive... Uh, procedure uh you can look to relatively recent uh, proceedings where people say well yeah well, this person's just so good or just so qualified uh that it's not it's not the most um vicious and partisan um fight around and um hopefully this this could actually maybe i'm just starry-eyed optimist but the <laughs> the first black woman going onto the court might be part of a healing process where people say you know where it's a landslide nomination confirmation and people say well this is important for societal reasons but also this person makes great decisions and it's going to be a great addition to the court bipartisan support is that really impossible i hope uh, you're right alex but i think the best case is it's 51 50 and you know maybe we peel off one republican to vote for her what do you what do you think uh, terry yeah i, I- you know, you, you, the fact that the Gorsuch nomination went through fairly easily, I think, says probably something about the fact that despite the fact that that was the, the replacement for, uh, for Merrick Garland, that 
they were still willing to come together at that time. I guess there still does suggest that there was some kind of willingness, at least on the part of the sure. Democrats, not to push back and fight. But as to what's coming up this summer, I would hope that there would be an understanding or agreement that that we could go back to those days of trusting the fact that uh, the nominee should get through. Um, yes, we, which is a principle yeah. I generally believe, no matter yeah. who they're replacing. But yeah, that argument's got to be stronger, right, given that it, they're replacing a liberal. So if it's going to be a liberal replacing a liberal, that's kind of, you, you might argue it's fair enough. I mean, if they were replacing a, a dyed-in-the-wool you know, right. uh, conservative, different. Yeah, you'd think uh, so. Yeah, I, I, yeah I, because, it, and it's still only 6-3, so it's not likely to substantially change the, the ideological bent of the court. So there should be less stakes uh, because it, all of the women who are up are probably going to, you know, are going to be a certain age. And so the expectation is that they're going to be there for a certain length of time um, and that, you know, they'll influence the court for a long period of time. So hopefully they'll save their powder for, uh, for the next fight. Right. And what a lot of court watchers have said, and I don't count myself as a court watcher, and I think a lot of people have gone bankrupt predicting what would happen in the Supreme Court. <laughs> but, you know, even if uh, the black woman that goes on the Supreme Court doesn't change the votes in the next 10 or 15 years. That perspective in those meetings, in those discussions between the justices will matter. Because again, th there's, there's a lot of isolation in being a career judge. You hear a lot of litigants, but you don't necessarily hear a lot of discussion with peers who are from different backgrounds as you. And I think the Supreme Court, from everything I've ever been able to tell, closes ranks around each other. Even if they don't agree on any of the issues, they agree on the institution of the court and they respect each other. And so I would hope that over time, the experiences of the next justice will influence what the other justices are doing, even if it remains six to three conservative. Uh, you know, because that's the whole thing about the court is that it's such a long-term institution and the tenures are so long. I think that is the way it in theory should be working is that, you know, institutional change happens over time and Overton's window of an idea opens and right. begins to become more established over time. Um, and, you know, it certainly will affect the court because as you say, they, they do sort of come together at least for institutional support. So, gentlemen, may I get back to Abraham Lincoln's quote, all the laws but one. Mm. Our Constitution is not crystal clear about whether only Congress or the president had the power to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. It's actually not in the Bill of Rights. It's in the original text of the Constitution. It is in Article 1, which is focused on Congress, but it does not say whether the president alone or only with Congress could suspend the writ. And you could make an argument, which Abraham Lincoln did, that because the president is clearly the commander in chief of the US military, once we are in an insurrection or a rebellion or a war, that responsibility falls to him. The Supreme Court at the time strongly opined that it was only Congress who could suspend the writ of habeas corpus. Uh, Lincoln considered suspending it for months uh, during the Civil War when it looked like he was gonna be encircled in his capital. And he was reluctant because he knew this was a radical, quite likely unconstitutional step. And he was a lawyer, of course. 
and he was a lawyer. He consulted with his cabinet, and one historian has written, quote, those to whom he looked for advice, comma, almost to a man, and yes, they were all men at this point, opposed this action, close quote. However, the way Lincoln told the story is, he says, I took a poll of my cabinet, and the vote was seven nays and one eye, and the eyes and had the it. the eyes had it. <laughs> <laughs> so on April 27th, 1861, President Lincoln issued an order to the commanding general of the U.S. Army that said, quote, if at any point you find resistance, which renders it necessary to suspend the writ of habeas corpus for the public safety, you are authorized to do so. Based on this directive, at two in the morning on May 25th, 1861, Union troops entered the room, the home of one John Merriman in Cockeysville, Maryland, you can't make it up, and arrested him for participation in the destruction of bridges between Maryland and D.C. after the Maryland riots. He was taken from his home by armed soldiers and imprisoned at Fort McHenry, which our listeners will remember from our discussion of the War of 1812 is where the Battle Hymn of the Republic was written during the War of 1812. What does this all have to do with the Supreme Court, you say? Good question. Immediately after his arrest, Merriman petitioned the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court to get his release. And the court ordered Merriman's release to civilian courts, finding that, first of all, the president cannot suspend the writ of habeas corpus on his own, which is a debatable proposition under the Constitution. And also that the, a U.S. military officer has no right to arrest and hold in custody a U.S. citizen even during wartime, which is less controversial. President Lincoln promptly and consistently ignored this order of the Supreme Court. And Merriman was not released until several months later and was never brought to trial at all. Hmm. Asked to explain himself before Congress, President Lincoln stated this, quote, are all the laws but one to go unexecuted and the government itself go to pieces lest that one be violated? And that is the title of Chief Justice Rehnquist's book, All the Laws But One, and that's where it comes from. Now, Lincoln was not the last president to, to defy our courts in wartime, and there's much more on that story. On the off chance that anyone has any doubt of the stakes of a U.S. Supreme Court nomination, I hope that puts it to rest. Again, listeners, thank you so much for all of your participation, your contribution to this podcast. It's driving it. We're going to get your stories out there. Thank you so much to our special guest, Terry Franklin. I hope uh, our eyes are opened a bit and our perspectives are broadened a bit. And until next time, Alex Dean, we would just say... Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. We thank our gifted producers, Jeremy Kaur and Kate Cruz, and our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle. Cheers.